your daily dose of debate, breaking news, and uncensored views. This is the Michael Medved Show. And another great day in this greatest nation on God's green earth. A great day uh, on Wall Street, amazingly. The uh, Dow Jones Industrial Average is up 332 points. The Standard & Poor 500 up uh, 49 points. I mean, this is a pretty solid day. Why? Uh, the economic news continues to be fairly terrible, as most people would consider it. And uh, you also have a, a situation where there three-quarters of the American people think we are headed in the wrong direction. So what is going on? Are we in the midst of a recession already? Uh, should we look forward, if that's the right word, to more recessionary, more shrinkage of our possibilities, of our growth, of our hopes? Uh, to get a perspective on all of this and the politics behind it, and uh, also the big debates about the chips bill, as it's called, about microchips and their role in the economy and the role of the government in supporting them. That bill uh, about to pass both houses of Congress and get signed by President Biden. And then there is the New Deal involving the Joe Manchin, Chuck Schumer bill. Is that a good thing for the country if we reach agreement on that? A fascinating person to speak about that is uh, Jerry Boyer, who is the chief economist of Vident Financial. He is the editor of Town Hall Finance, uh, the editor of Business Channel uh, of the Christian Post, host of Meeting of the Minds with Jerry Boyer podcast and more. He's also a friend. And uh, Jerry, what is going on? First of all, are we in a recession already? Uh, first of all, yes. <laughs> Second of all, the most honorific thing you mentioned was friend of Michael Medved. So out of all those titles, I think I like that one the best. Well, thank but, you. Uh, yeah, we're in a recession. We've been in a recession since January or maybe February. Um, and I know there's a kind of political game going on here with the definition of a recession. Uh, earlier this week, the Biden administration put out a statement saying, well, you know, if just because we have two quarters in a row of negative economic growth, you know, even if we get a negative economic growth number on Thursday, that's not actually what a recession is. You know, this is the we're the experts. That's not the actual definition of a recession. It's only a recession if the National Bureau of Economic Research says it's a recession. Well, that's flatly false. The dictionary definition of a recession is two or more quarters in a row of economic growth. Also, there is a legal definition of a recession. It's in the U.S. Code uh, based on law. That also defines a recession as two or more quarters in a row of economic growth. Most of the developed world defines a recession as two or more quarters in a row of economic growth. And the predicted, you know, the futures markets that we talk about where you place a you know, bet on politics, you can also do that on recession. And when they do those contracts, how do you know you won? You, you buy 30 cents, uh, you, you know, you buy a future for 30 cents. And then at the end, how does predicted or one of these other um, um, uh, futures market decide whether we, in fact, had a recession? Well, they use the same definition as everybody else in the world, two quarters of negative economic growth. And we found out today that that's exactly what we had. It is a recession. Okay, so the question is, what do we do about it? Is there any possibility, you think, 
that before the election, before the installation next January of a new Congress that presumably will replace Nancy Pelosi with Kevin McCarthy, the Republicans with the Democrat, oh, the Republicans replacing the Democrats. With before that change occurs, is there anything that could be done to try to reduce the pain for the average American family? Well, I suppose you can reduce it a little bit, but I don't think you can really solve the economic problem with anything that's on the table right now from the administration. Um, plus, there's a sort of a lag. Uh, if, let's say that things get better in October. Nobody changes their mind. <laughs> uh, so we're pretty much getting you know, almost like locked in um, with our sense of economic bad times. Now, as an economist, my job is to say recession or no recession, right? But for most Americans, they just think good times, bad times. So let's say in the fall, we move into positive territory, like we have a little bit of economic growth. But, you know, prices are still 10 percent or 8 percent or even 5 percent higher than they were before. Most Americans don't say, well, it's inflation, but not recession. We just sort of kind of say, are these good times or bad times? And they're bad times economically, no matter what one particular monthly economic report says. And I really think it's too late for them, unless something changes in an incredibly dramatic way. And I don't see anything like that on the horizon. We're going to go into this election with the sense that these are bad economic times, which is why the political futures market has the Republicans at 55 percent for the House. A 55 percent. I would have thought it would be higher than that. What about the Senate? Uh, the Senate is a little bit higher than that, but I don't have that number in front of me. Uh, th- in other words, they think it's more likely that the Republicans win the Senate than the House? They're, they're very similar numbers. They're both in that mid-50s to high-50s area. Right. And, and uh, I know that the political futures markets, it's a real thing, and you are the wizard of the political futures market. Uh, do they see... Uh, Joe Biden winning a second term? (laughs) 19%. 19% chance? That's the same as his rate of approval among Hispanics, according to a new Quintiac. (laughs) That's interesting. So this is is, um, uh, kind of amazing. 30% Donald Trump, 28% Ron DeSantis, 19% Joe Biden. So the real battle for the presidency right now is between Donald Trump and Ron DeSantis. Um, Now, of course... By the time we hit the general election, we will have nominated one or the other. But like as of right now, when we don't know for sure who's won the nomination, the two most likely presidential winners are Trump and DeSantis. Uh-huh. And uh, do they uh, give you any odds for who they think is more likely to be a Democratic presidential nominee? Uh, right now they're saying over on the Democratic side that the two most viable candidates – are uh, Gavin Newsom, governor of California, and Vice President Kamala Harris. What do the futures markets say? They're both equally likely to win the presidency, which is at 8%, so not very likely, for the the general election. Um, But if we're asking about the primary, Newsom is ahead of Harris, kind of closing in on Biden. So it's Biden, Newsom, Harris, with Biden by about 10% lead. So this, the likely scenario for the Dems 
is Biden wins the nomination. The likely scenario for the Republicans is Trump wins the nomination. And then the likely scenario in the general is Trump wins the general. By the way, doing a little bit of that wizardry, you know, my expecto patronum or accio or whatever it is, I was able to calculate that even though Trump is more likely to win the, the um, primary, um, DeSantis is more likely to win the general if he wins the primary. In other words, if you're trying to choose in the primary who's most likely to win in November, you would go with DeSantis over Trump. Yeah, I mean, look, obviously there's a question of a certain amount of baggage that uh, that DeSantis doesn't have. Right now you don't have the Justice Department <laughs> investigating criminal charges against Ron DeSantis for anything, do you? Uh, uh, Jerry Boyer, uh, in terms of the long-term future of the country, uh, there are still reasons for optimism. I know you have to run a busy time. I mean, reasons for optimism in terms of, do you, do you think, just yes or no, inevitably the market is going to start heading back south again uh, because of the recession that we've entered? No, I think the market is essentially betting that we're almost through the recession. Um, okay, so I think it's going to be fed from now on. That's terrific and great news, I guess. Uh, Jerry Boyer, a real pleasure. Uh, coming up, uh, canceling debt is not a radical idea, says an historian. It goes back to biblical times. What can the uh, Biden administration learn from those biblical and other experiences coming up on the Medved Show. Medved show. I want to respond to a smart email that came in. And the email is from Michael in Seattle. And he uh, writes in, Michael, you need to acknowledge that in a previous ruling by the Wisconsin Supreme Court, the changes were made to the voting practices in Wisconsin dur during the uh, 2020 election that were unconstitutional according to the state constitution. Please look it up. At the time of the ruling, they also noted that they would not go back and decertify the election. Please report this issue fairly. Uh, the decertification, uh, which is still being pushed by Republicans in Wisconsin, particularly a member of the State House of Representatives who's running for higher office. I believe he's running for Secretary of State in Wisconsin. It's a primary coming up. His name is Tim Ramthan. He's still pushing to decertify the, the election two years ago that occurred in Wisconsin. And by the way, did not determine the election. Biden won by 36 electoral votes. Wisconsin constituted 10 of them. So you're very far from overturning a national election. In any event, this is a um, uh, appeared three weeks ago in the Washington Post. Split Wisconsin Supreme Court rules, drop boxes are illegal. Voters must mail or hand deliver absentee ballots to clerk. In a four to three decision, uh, again, this is three weeks ago, the state's high court upheld the lower court's January ruling 
that absentee ballots must be delivered by mail or in person to a local clerk's office or a designated alternate site. However, the court did not rule on whether voters can have someone else handle their ballots on its way to a mailbox. The divided Wisconsin Supreme Court barred the use of most ballot drop boxes and ruled voters could not give their completed absentee ballots to others to return to election clerks on their behalf, a practice that some conservatives disparage as uh, ballot harvesting. Voting rights proponents said the decision would make it harder for voters, particularly those with disabilities, to return their absentee ballots. Many Republicans countered the ruling provides needed protections against voter fraud and could help prevent someone from casting a ballot in the name of someone else. For years, ballot drop boxes were used without controversy across Wisconsin. Election clerks greatly expanded their use in 2020 during the coronavirus pandemic as an absentee voting uh, hit unprecedented levels. Okay, I the point about all of this is I, I mentioned very specifically, we went at the very end of uh, last week. No, it was, actually, it was earlier this week. It was the beginning of this week. My wife and I went to our local Dropbox, dropped our ballots in for the primary elections coming up, uh, which I hope everyone will participate in. It's, it's worth voting in a primary, even though this state is so heavily Democratic that sometimes kind of Republicans give up hope. Don't. Uh, go out there and vote for Tiffany Smiley, for instance, for U.S. Senate, and uh, play an active role. Uh, the point about this is I, I, honest to God, do not understand the obsession with any of this. And that's why I read with, with great interest a headline in the New York Times. It's an article today. It says, man's hobby was getting many ballots, officials say. Uh, two years ago, a Manhattan resident named Louis Koch uh, asked the New York City Board of Elections to mail him absentee ballots for the primary and general elections for 2020. He didn't stop there. Since then, Mr. Koch, or Mr. Koch, it's K-O-C-H, uh, like the Koch brothers, uh, he has obtained well over 100 absentee ballots in the names of other people, including prominent politicians, journalists, and lawyers without their permission, according to a criminal complaint filed in federal district court. But despite ordering all of those ballots, Mr. Koch never cast them in an election. He told FBI agents who interviewed him last month that he collected the ballots as a hobby, the complaint said. The uh, hobby may become an expensive one. Mr. Koch, 39, was arrested on July 8th and he was charged with using false information in voting and identity theft. He was released on a $250,000 bond pending further legal proceedings. According to the complaint, Mr. Koch uh, applied for the absentee ballots by entering his victims' names, dates of birth, counties of residence, and zip codes into the election board's website. He then directed that the ballots be mailed to his apartment in Manhattan and a family home in Tenafly, New Jersey, the uh, complaint said. The elections board is reviewing its records, identified at least 95 additional absentee ballot requests in the last week of May, 
which had been submitted in the names of other people, including recognizable politicians, media personalities, and lawyers, the complaint said. On June 30th, the FBI conducted uh, searches of Mr. Koch's addresses. The complaint said in his Manhattan apartment, agents found more than 100 absentee ballots in the names of other people, which had been issued by New York, California, and Washington, D.C., for various elections, including the June 28th New York primary. At the Tenafly residence in New Jersey, agents searched Mr. Koch's childhood bedroom and seized additional such ballots, the complaint said. The number of absentee ballots cast in New York City has varied in recent years, reaching nearly 684,000 in the November 2020 general election. Mr. Ignazio, who is one of the officials who's been looking at this, said that the board's investigation found that none of the absentee ballots Mr. Koch was said to have obtained in the names of other people were ever cast in any election. A U.S. Attorney's Office spokesman declined to comment. Mr. Koch is registered as a Democrat. What a shock. According to a public uh, record of the Elections Board. According to the complaint, Mr. Koch and the FBI agents, uh, when they met, he told them that he had been ordering ballots in other people's names since at least 2020, and he has enjoyed this as a harmless hobby. Well, it's not harmless, and in fact, it may even be useful because it uh, indicates that uh, you have to do more than uh, to basically trust people when you send them the absentee ballots that can be uh, be sent in and then uh, voted by someone unscrupulous. The one thing is that they do check signatures. They do. And uh, they here in Washington, they actually ask you to put your phone number on if they find a problem with your signature, with it not matching, or any of the information not matching, to make sure you're a real person. And uh, the idea that uh, they've sent FBI agents and local state agents and cops to arrest this guy, uh, look, it's appropriate, and it should be encouraging for people who want election integrity. Speaking of election integrity, what about the criminal case against Donald Trump? We will get to that with David French coming up on The Medved Show. And on The Michael Medved Show, always a pleasure and an honor to welcome to this show my friend David French. He is the senior editor of The Dispatch. He is also a columnist for The Atlantic. He is also one of America's most successful and prominent conservative uh, religious liberty attorneys. He's the author of several books, including Divided We Fall, The Rise of ISIS, A Threat We Can't Ignore, and much more. And uh, he also is responsible for some of the most piercing and uh, deep uh, commentary about our current political situation. Uh, David, I hope you're enjoying a great summer. Well, thanks so much for having me. And uh, I'll say I'm enjoying a really hot summer. <laughs> <laughs> Even here in the Northwest, where generally this has been a, a week of un, unseasonably, well, I guess it is seasonable. It's uh, unusually warm weather. Okay, so speaking about getting warmer, uh, 
right now, today, there's news about Mick Mulvaney going in, the former budget director, former congressman from South Carolina, former acting chief of staff for President Trump. He's gone in to uh, have a little chat with uh, the people who work together with Liz Cheney and uh, Benny Thompson and the January 6th Select Committee. And there's talk that the uh, next uh, close associate of President Trump who might go in to speak with them would be Mike Pompeo. Uh, do you believe it is looking uh, more and more likely that uh, the Attorney General of the United States, Merrick Garland, will be forced to move towards some kind of indictment against the former president, which would be unprecedented and wildly controversial. What do you think happens? So I think likely is a strong word, but I think it's getting more and more possible. Um, and the reason why it's getting more and more possible is the evidence is, is quite frankly, accumulating. And it's and what's important to understand, it's not just accumulating in D.C. surrounding January 6th itself. It's accumulating around Georgia. And Georgia is the place where, truth be told, if Donald Trump wasn't the former president of the United States and he was sort of the former sheriff of Fulton County, <laughs> he'd already be indicted. Uh, I don't think there's much doubt of that. The the way in which the, the combination of the threats to the Georgia Secretary of State surrounding the command to find um, almost 12,000 votes to hand him the state, uh, the not at all implicit or veiled threat to prosecute uh, if he didn't, combined with the fake elector scheme, which keep your eyes on this fake elector scheme, because Georgia law is very, very clear about one of the uh, election fraud felonies includes tampering with, for example, elector lists. So keep a close eye on Georgia. Keep a close eye on the grand jury in Washington. But as you said, it's so unprecedented to indict a former president that you could have a set of facts that would lead to virtually any other human being in the United States being indicted, and the attorney general or perhaps the prosecutor for Fulton County would choose not to indict just because of the political and cultural dynamic. But if his name wasn't Donald Trump, or if he wasn't former president, if he was a former sheriff or a former state legislator, we would be waiting for that indictment. It would be coming any time. Okay, let me ask you this, because obviously we're talking about an election year where the former president is a likely candidate for the presidency another time. And I know that one of the standards that uh, attorneys general try to maintain, that uh, the legal profession tries to maintain, is that the Justice Department isn't supposed to be used as a political cudgel. You're, you're not supposed right. to play political games with the Justice Department. Wouldn't Garland be opening himself to that kind of charge? And is it not possible that in the midst of a campaign for uh, another term uh, that Trump might actually gain from uh, the the confirmation of what he has said. He said recently in his speech in, in Washington, D.C., he said he's the most persecuted person in all of U.S. history. And <laughs> uh, do you don't want to, can uh, Justice, uh, the 
Department of Justice does not want to confirm that designation, do they? Well, here's the problem. So the problem is if he if there are facts that would lead to Trump being indicted unless he were the former president, I mean, it's sort of a situation where Garland's in a bind here because we're beginning to the facts are beginning to emerge to such an extent that you're putting a situation where he the only reason he would not indict Trump is because Trump is the Republican front runner. And that's also a political matter. Do you want to give somebody, a citizen of the United States, that much leeway to break the law because they're that powerful? In other words, their power buys them um, a uh, uh, buys them impunity. Um, so it's a real problem that I think that that tr- Trump has put the DOJ and prosecutors in a real bind because he's engaged in behavior that pretty clearly implicates both federal and state criminal law. But at the same time, everyone knows that prosecute him, prosecuting him for that behavior would be a political firestorm, but it's a political firestorm to not prosecute him. So it's a, it's, his behavior has put prosecutors in a real bind here. And my one, my one, the way I look at this is if the case is clear, if the case is clear, he should be prosecuted. If you have to stretch the law, if you have to extend the law in a way where the, it maybe is moving beyond uh, or moving to the edges of relevant precedent, then don't do it. The political firestorm is just too big. It's too, too fraught. But if the facts indicate that there is a clear case that he violated either federal or state election law, I think you have to prosecute him because we cannot have a rule of law if one of the rules is – well, there's a point where you become too powerful to prosecute. One of the things, David, that you and I have talked about before is uh, you did a book about the uh, United States actually breaking apart, uh, states seceding, the country actually becoming a very different series of countries that would be somewhat competitive with each other. Uh, Do you still believe that's a real possibility? I think it's a possibility. I I think that what I wanted to do when I wrote the book was I wanted to highlight that we don't have any truly important cultural, political, religious, or social trends that are pulling Americans together more than they're pushing us apart. And that book was published in September 2020, and I didn't anticipate things getting as bad as they've gotten. So you have a situation as quickly as they have. So the book is written in September 2020, January 6, 2021, you know, just a little more than three months after publication. A mob storms the Capitol, uh, the first, uh, you know, disrupting the tradition of peaceful transition of power that has reigned for generations in the United States. Uh, then you have polling data that indicates up to 52 percent of Trump voters would be OK with uh, blue states seceding, almost 40 percent of Democratic Biden voters would be OK with red states seceding. Uh, you saw recent polling that up to a quarter of Americans indicated that they believe it may be necessary to take up arms against the government. Um, there's a combination of polling data combined with escalating incidents of political violence. You know, everything from the attempted assassination of Brett Kavanaugh to the uh, person arrested who was staking out Pramila uh, J. Paul's home, 
mean, we could just go down incident after incident after incident on the right and on the left of political violence, and it's dangerous. Okay, so what I want to talk about is from your common sense Christian perspective, what do we do to bring our people and this country that we love back from the brink? Because the brink that we're talking about now is pretty darn awful. Uh, we will be right back with David French coming up on the Medved Show. On the Michael Medved Show, this is a sour time for the United States of America. Um, more and more people believe that we're headed in the wrong direction. The polling now has gone up to 85% who believe that. Uh, the There are polls uh, virtually every week. There's new polling that shows that Americans really are ready for some kind of civil war. They're ready to take up arms against the government. I'm not sure what exactly they're going to protest against the government with their arms. Uh, people are on edge. They are distrustful. Crime is going up, and I think that part of the whole political atmosphere promotes the rise in crime. It, it doesn't do anything to correct it. David French, uh, who is a senior editor of The Dispatch and a columnist for Atlantic, also, I should mention a decorated veteran uh, of our armed services for service in Iraq. Uh, David, what, is, what does the country need most to try to put the pieces back together? That is a, that is a tremendous question. And, and what I, the best way I can put it is that um, the exhausted majority needs to become energetic. And, and here's what I mean by the exhausted majority. This is a group of Americans, the majority of Americans, more than two-thirds, in fact, that um, social science tells us that they're on the right, the left, and the middle. It's not all everyone, all the moderates in the middle. There are people on conservative, progressive, moderate, who are sick of the polarization. They are done with the polarization. They are tired of a political culture in which the two wings, uh, the two polarized wings, are tearing each other to shreds. And the good news is that's a majority of Americans. The bad news is they're exhausted. They've pulled away. They're not exerting the power, the decisive power they would have over our body politic. And I'm convinced that they're going to remain exhausted until leadership can step forward that can activate them. So I think there is a huge untapped reservoir of Americans who are ready for something else, but they've not been given the vision for something else. No one has been able to give them the vision for something else. And, and part of that is, you know, a lack of leadership. Part of that's structural. I mean, you know, we have highly gerrymandered districts where small minorities of the United States can control essentially large majorities of Congress. I mean, these are structural problems. But the good news is we do have a majority of Americans who are sick and tired of the, the unrelenting polarization. The bad news is they're responding by stepping away from politics and not leaning in to correct what's ailing us. 
If uh, I, I know that uh, Andrew Yang, uh, who is planning, I guess, to run for president again, this time not as a Democrat but as an independent, is trying to organize some new third party. Um, third parties tend to fare very poorly in the United right. States. Uh, they they don't work. Um, it in terms of the kind of leadership we're all waiting for that leadership do you have some sense david if someone asked you what should that uh leadership promise in terms of uh healing and unification yeah that's a that's a really good question i mean one of the things the leadership can promise that this is a low bar that they're not going to be toxic they're not going to contribute to the problem in other words they're not going to treat their opponents as enemies to be destroyed, but as fellow citizens to to be governed for the common good, for for the good of the country. So if you can just elevate politics a tiny bit out of the dynamic that says the libs are to be owned or the conservatives are be to, to be dominated, that's a that's a start. The second thing is there's a emerging school of thought uh, about politics that is not populism, but it's called popularism. And it's essentially saying, wait, shouldn't government do things that are both beneficial and popular? In other words, rather than playing to polarized bases, rather than motivating bases, um, find a, a few measures, a few things that are both beneficial and popular and focus energy there. Um, and this is, and, and this is, would be a change. I mean, Look, in, in 2012, Barack Obama won the presidency uh, and won re-election in large part by activating his base around things like this alleged war, fictional war on women <laughs> that existed. Um, no one would say that Trump won 2016 by broadly reaching out across the big American middle. And in 2020, although Biden did reach out to that big American middle, and it's one of the reasons why he won, his, he's been very hit or miss on the way that he's governed. I mean, some things that he's signed into law are broadly popular, and some things are, um, in some ways, he's catered to sort of the left-wing base of the party. And so I think there are there's some low-hanging fruit out there, but one of the problems that we have is that all sounds well and good in theory, right? All, all of these theories sound great, but they have to be connected to actual people, and I applaud, you know, I applaud what Andrew Yang is trying to do. I don't know if he's the person who can activate this sort of this lingering or not lingering, but uh, prevalent um, resentment towards both parties. I applaud the idea. I applaud the concept. It's um, just whether the execution is possible is what I wonder. And speaking about the execution, one of the things that I've been focused on is there is so much um, – Discussed, and that's not too strong a word, on both sides, on all sides, yes. everywhere, with the system we have of choosing a president of the United States, yes. the fact that it could come down to the Electoral Count Act, which desperately needs to <laughs> be repaired, right. and the entire lunacy of, uh, look, I think it's a bad thing for the country that we have two of our, uh, the, the two most recent Republican presidents have both been uh, initially elected but with a, while losing the popular vote. Right, uh, right. I, don't you think one of the things that could unite more people across 
party lines is just making elections not so damn long, so ridiculously expensive, so never-ending, and simplifying the nomination and the election process without changing the Constitution, which I think is doable. Yeah, I I do think that there is a need for – there's a need for clarity. There's a need for efficiency and competence. I mean, think about, for example, um, the disparity in competence that you see in the various states. So Florida, which was burned pretty badly for in 2020 and has had more than its share of hyper-close elections, has its act together, and it can count votes quickly and did count votes quickly in 2020. And then in other states, you've seen legislatures play games with vote counting so that you know, Republican legislatures uh, deliberately we withheld and refused to pass laws allowing the counting of absentee ballots as they came in, requiring them to be opened and counted on Election Day after the polls close so that results are then delayed materially as people count the votes. And that delay causes mistrust. So there's all kinds of things that we can do to build trust in our elections because our elections are becoming a real uh, flashpoint. And and I saw someone say this on Twitter, and I think it's exactly correct, that this country, and there's so much paranoia surrounding elections, and there's so much, so many people are convinced that their side only loses through fraud or misconduct, that this country could literally tear itself to pieces without having a single unfair election, just because of slowness, inefficiency, and mistrust. And, and again, this at a, an epic where, in an era when uh, we are so much more technologically advanced and it should be doable. I, I think part of what you have is also the, the disparity. I mean, I believe in federalism, but the idea that from one state to another, there's a completely different approach to not only how you uh, uh, are going to end up allotting the electoral votes, but how you allot the votes at a party convention. And by the way, if conventions aren't going to matter, and they don't anymore, why do they even exist? It's just a, a matter of spending more money for a partisan pep rally, which uh, usually doesn't provide too much in the way of inspiration. There's all that that deserves conversation. David French, uh, senior editor at The Dispatch, he has a... Um, a terrific new piece that's up at the dispatch called is there a christian case for trump question mark and uh and much much more a consistent voice of clarity and force and uh, necessity for this greatest nation on god's green earth